Hey everyone, it's your girl Dee Marie and you are watching Breaking Bread, a video podcast created by Locked In where we meet at the table and have meaningful conversations with those who've been affected by the justice system and those who are active in reform. Make sure to like, subscribe, and leave comments on our YouTube channel as well as take us on the road through Anchor, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Today our special guest is returning from season one and he's sharing his thoughts about rehabilitation and what that looks like in CDCR and who actually is in charge of the rehabilitation. He also talks about abolition of prisons and the police and what that can really look like in our society, as well as what Initiate Justice is doing with laws and legislatures to be able to change our prison system. So let's get into the podcast. Everyone, you're watching Breaking Bread, and I'm your host, Dee Marie, and our special guest today is returning from season one, Graham Finocchio. Thank you so much for coming on to the show again. For those who didn't see episode one or season one with you, can you just tell us a little bit about your life, how you were raised, and what led you towards um, the prison that you were incarcerated at? Sure. So uh, my name is Graham Finocchio. Thank you for having me yes, back again. Absolutely. Uh, so I was incarcerated for the majority of my life, most recently for a 15-year stretch. I was involved in white supremacist gangs. Uh, and uh, like drug use, drug behavior, a lot of harm I committed on my community that took me directly to prison. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> yeah. And I spent uh, the majority of my time doing the same thing in there. And then eventually got involved with groups uh, and folks that were engaged in like rehabilitative uh grouping, I guess you'd call it. And that's what got me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. So you had this long stretch of this kind of criminal mentality, and then you had a breakthrough in, in prison. With having so much time living uh, a criminal behavior, and now that you're out, how many how many years have you been out now? For almost uh, three and a half years. Three and a half four. years. Have you? Do you ever see yourself or feel that you're slipping back into old behaviors? That's a really good question. Um, and to I want to address the term criminal lifestyle or criminal behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, what I would call it now, and this isn't blame shifting because I take full responsibility and accountability for my actions, mm -hmm. I'd call those some really harmful trauma responses. Mm -hmm. Pretty much the majority of my life was that. Okay. Criminal behavior is a con like there's a social context that comes with it yeah. that says that the law determines what we should or should not do. I do. I knew the things I was doing were wrong. Mm -hmm. I was doing them anyways, with or like with or without the law. Mm -hmm. I was doing harmful things that hurt people. Uh, but do I see myself shifting into behaviors? Not to that extent. I am much looser in my life today than when I first came home. There was a lot of fear when I first came home. Mm -hmm. uh, a cop would be behind me or drive by me. My hackles would go up. Mm -hmm. I'd go into like a state of panic. Um, I was afraid to jaywalk. I was afraid to do anything. I'm not so much scared of those things anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and with that looseness comes uh, not tendencies. I'd say probably just like a... Like conflicts comes more easily. I'm not scared of what happens in an argument with someone or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so short answer, no. I don't see myself shifting back into behaviors that harm people. But, uh, I mean, I am wary. I'm much more wary than I would have been mm -hmm. 25 years ago. Do you still see your – like I, I've, I've heard men that have come here and – 
you know, prison, you have to be so on guard. Like you're, you know everything. You're mm. watching everything. Do you still have that outside yes. as well too? Hypervigilance, social mm-hmm. anxiety, mm-hmm. A, a lot of tension in grocery stores, at family events. Mm. Um, I noticed that right before I had something that I have to do, including like this podcast or anything, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do it. It sounds like an inconvenience. Is the 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 like that's the conscious story, mm. and behind that, there's a whole degree of social anxiety that comes from just moving at the speed of life when my mindset is still at a slower, uh, much more like a aggressive speed, a different speed. Does does it mm. make sense? Is it, was a slower speed because of incarceration? You move slow in prison oh, because okay. it's a violent environment. Because mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that the people are violent. But violence obviously takes place right, there, right. and so that hyper vigilance—you'll see it in a visiting room. You'll sit in the visiting room, and you'll watch the partner that's there to visit their loved one, fully focused on the person they're visiting, and the person trying that's incarcerated trying to focus on them, but also seeing every move to the vending machine, everywhere that the cop goes, uh, and that's pretty much how every dinner goes with me. If I go out to dinner, if I mm. go to a social event, mm, interesting. Do you do you ever see that ever going away with time, or do you think that that's mm. going to be kind of like the new norm? I, I'd love it to go away. Mm. I also wonder what would happen if it went away um, in terms of awareness. Because hypervigilance and hyperawareness, it's uh, it's kind of painful, like like mm. like anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety with oh. it, and simultaneously, being aware of what's going on around you is beneficial. So yeah. I get a benefit out of being able to pay attention to things that many people aren't paying attention. It's to. like a it's like a two edged sword, yes. right? So it's good, yeah. but then it also has all that that's going with it. So you had said that um, you were heavily involved in drugs um, during that time. So you were also involved in AA while you were incarcerated, which is big on making amends. Uh, What advice can you share with guys who are coming back home that are uh, really anxious about making amends and undoing the harm that they've done? If I had like one thing to say on that, it would be approach amends as a method as a method of uh, a method of accountability not as a like shame like not with a shame intent does if if that makes like if i could explain that a little more like Mm -hmm. when i first began doing my process of amends it was because i had harmed this person which is okay to acknowledge and i owed so much because i was such a terrible person who did such terrible things to so many people Mm -hmm. and i don't find that valuable today Mm -hmm. i find shame to be a socially constructed emotion like it is an emotion there's real shame there's real shame that we feel and guilt that we feel and there's what society tells us we're supposed to be ashamed and guiltful of right Mm -hmm. and they're two very different things but we often bridge them together i often bridge them together so in in approaching my amends at first i became indebted to so many people because of that and i think that really the real change the real transformation happens inside um and so a living amends and making right decisions and uh, like being compassionate and empathic towards folks who are going through harmful situations and painful situations is a much better amends than approaching someone and going, I owe you everything because I did something harmful to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that goes both ways. I think that, think that a lot of people, um, if they were to like hypothetically view what the amends would look like coming at them that someone's going to make, they think that person owed them something. And I don't think that's a valuable place right. uh, to find healing for either party. Yeah. So how do you, I don't know how to phrase this question, but 
obviously the person that has been harmed is feeling like there's a debt but so how do you how how does there a switch because you don't want to change obviously them because that's not my my place to change you and your thought process how can i be able to show you a living amends without having to feel like i'm indebted to you i think it's the focus on self and that's why they call AA a selfish program because it's super selfless. It is a program that's committed to other people, right? To caring and, and, and empathizing with other people. And simultaneously, it's a program where you're working on you and, and to transform harmful behavior, the focus has to be on what's most important for you to do the right thing. Like, what do I need to do that? And that doesn't mean that you dismiss everything that you've done. Mm-hmm. But when you focus on those things that you, you feel uh, remorse for, you focus on what can I do to be better so I don't do that again. Everything is it's progressive. It's forward moving. Mm. Th- focusing on the past is where we get bogged down in shame, right? Like yeah. I, my my act where I went to prison and harmed someone, uh, I can never take that back. That can never go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, me beating myself up doesn't make it any better for me than it does for the person that I harmed. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what they want because society tells them that that's what they are supposed to want. You're supposed to want someone to go away for a really long time, to suffer in there, to come home, to f- live uh, in this state of self-castigation for the rest of their life. But that doesn't do anything for their healing either. I think what's really needed is like a huge investment in mental health resources Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, trauma therapy, trauma-based therapy for that person and for the person who has done harm. Because it takes takes something to get someone to do those things Mm -hmm. as well as it takes something to heal from having those things done to you. That's true. And I've, I've never heard it from that perspective because a lot of times people are like, you know, the person who's done the wrong, you need to be going to classes, you need to ch- change your life. And you don't think about the person who was quote unquote victimized though, how they need to actually get support services for what happened and to yeah. deal with what happened to them as well, too. Yeah. And that there's a lot of both of them needing that healing process that goes on. And so you always hear it from one side, but not usually the other. I realized uh, I went to an 1170D hearing to, uh, I wrote a letter and spoke for someone at their 1170D, which is a resentencing hearing. Okay. Uh, and it was a DUI manslaughter. Uh, and at the age of 19, this person had two prior DUIs, excuse me, had two prior DUIs and had went drunk driving and hit a car and killed the person in the car, harmed other family members. It had been 26 years. Nothing brings that family member back. Right. Uh, and this family had been informed throughout the par- process of 26 years, throughout the pain of mourning a, lo- a loved one that's peeled from you, that this is the way that justice is served, that this person going away and staying away is how justice is served. So in their head, he's never coming home. And then 1170D happens. Now they're in court uh, crying. And I, I saw their pain. Yeah. And I know this person. I know the, the work that they've done mm-hmm. on themselves and the remorse and guilt and shame that they feel. I know how they feel about what they've done. And I also can see visibly this family going through it 26 years after. Nothing has been done. Systemically, nothing's been done to, to remedy the pain that they feel. No restitution had been paid to them. No therapy had been offered to them. Um, And so like in watching that, you can see just how flawed the system is that's in place because you're told that this is a solution. I I can stay angry forever at this person as long as they're not in front of me. Right. That's not how healing works. Yeah, exactly. So I we want I want to really dig into the the prison system with you because I know that you are very um, vocal about abolishing prison, and so before we get into that, to me, what does rehabilitation look like in prison? 
There's a misnomer there. So rehabilitation okay. takes place in prison. Mm-hmm. I like to say that it takes place in spite of prison. Rehabil- so there's groups that are offered. Ask anybody who set up a group. It's very difficult to get these groups in place. CDCR, the actual the actual entity, doesn't do anything to create nor maintain these groups besides a couple papers here that you sign, right? Everything has, that has been done to expand rehabilitation has been on the, the hands of folks inside, A, through hunger striking, and then through building out a massive rehabilitative offering. Like and them creating the curriculum, Them creating basically. the curriculums, mm-hmm. modeling behavior, encouraging people who usually wouldn't do that, like myself, to get involved, uh, and then adding those voices to the conversation at you know, uh, at, during during which CDCR usually limits, pushes into a dark corner, doesn't allow you out of your cell, doesn't designate an ill tag, which means like a leisure time group mm. that you can go. Like they, they put up tremendous hurdles in creating these to things. To try and do the rehabilitation. Absolutely. And then okay. simultaneously, any other expansion of rehabilitation has been at the hands of the state legislature through people on the streets advocating a community-based organization speaking to the representatives and saying, we need more of this. This isn't taking place. Mm. Um, there's a, a huge misunderstanding like communally that people think that folks are just laying around doing yoga and going to group and group and group and group. It's really hard to get into those groups. There's mm. seven-month waiting lists because CDCR doesn't allow enough space for people to take groups. And not enough programming yeah. in them to be able to offer multiples. Absolutely. And so the exception for the place where I paroled from, CTF, uh, is that it has a large offering of groups. That is not the case for the other 33 prisons that are in our prison system, right? The other 33 men's prisons and the three women's prisons don't have that kind of offering. It's really hard to start a group, get into a group, etc. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. So rehabilitation wasn't added on to CDCR until about the 2000s, right? Like early 2000s. They saw the uh, the need, quote unquote, or maybe they felt pressured for the need to put on the R. But now you're seeing so much data, so much results, so many results from rehabilitation. Why is there still this such adversity towards trying to have rehabilitation in the prison systems? I think that goes with like the systemic flaw. The, the system is designed to not rehabilitate. It's designed to not do that. So if they try to, if you try to add, you know, an extra room to your house and you don't have the proper blueprints and licensing to do so you have a house that's built shoddily right that's essentially what happens so cdcr was designed to punish prison systems were designed to punish only punish uh to chastise and make people feel the things that we talked about earlier shame and guilt for what they've done uh, the word penitentiary comes from penitence from mm-hmm, penance right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh and so i feel like it's just not designed for something like that and any external pressure that has forced them to create it it's always against their will seemingly like so they aren't they have the division of uh, rehabilitative programs which is one of the the head divisions in cdcr but what looks over that is division of adult institutions and they manage all the security security concerns and that's what limits DRP DAI limits DRP and keeps CDCR constantly pushing back against programs like mm. that and making things a longer shot during during COVID uh, we we I work for success stories program and we started a correspondence program and the goal was to get during COVID while everybody's locked inside their cells rat credits which is offered under state law for every person in CDCR and we said we do not want to offer our correspondence program unless they're given rat credits CDCR's answer was first a two-year fight 
Wow. Then we passed legislation through Initiate Justice that made it mandated that CDCR come up with alternatives to programming within the cell in case something like this happens again. And now there's a pilot program developing that is a like two-year pilot program mm -hmm. where only 10% of the population will be permitted RAC credits for correspondence. There's an easier way, but CDCR isn't designed to do an easier way. It's designed to punish, mm -hmm. to limit. Mm -hmm. Do you know how much money is that CDCR is investing into rehabilitation right now? Mm. So I don't have the exact numbers. Mm -hmm. I wanted to look that up to be more prepared for this. What I can say is CDCR doesn't invest anything. The state taxpayers invest everything. It comes out of our taxes. Ah, okay. CDCR creates a budget right. and tells the state what they need, right? And their budget is based off of uh, external pressures. So we have to do these things. So we will do these things. Um, and no matter how much they invest, it doesn't stop the hurdles from being set up. I'm working to get into uh, nine prisons right now for success stories. We have grants to operate in nine prisons and I've gotten, we've gotten into four. The other five are, it, it's been a seven month process of turning paperwork in, being rejected, needing this form, needing that form. It's, it's a bureaucracy. It operates exactly as we expect a bureaucracy to operate. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. So can you explain what it means as far as how you see society function better um, without prison so if we abolish prison how is that better than being able to reform or or something to be able to have to replace it like what's what's the difference and why are you for the abolishment and not for reform so I think that it's important to do both uh, through the work that I do with various organizations. Now there are like non-reformist reforms. It's not about making a better prison system, but it is about taking the, the most harmful elements out of the prison system that exists now. Which are what? Uh, so, uh, for example, solitary confinement, which we can talk about uh, during solitary confinement uh, for a large part of the last 40 years, there were people who were caged in the shoe security housing unit for 25 26 years at a time never got out uh it, when it's shown through the, the mandela act that like this is one of the most detrimental things that you can do a person never comes back from that i spent five years straight eight years total in the hole during my time incarcerated in this 15 mm. years uh and i'll never be the same and I know this, and I acknowledge it, and I work on it in therapy, and I talk openly about it so that other people can be aware. So that's one element that they thought, well, this is what we got to do for safety and security. What does that do? Like, tell, tell me your experience, like, as far as being, you know, isolated. What does that do to you mentally? It changes you. Like, there's changes that take place. Um, I came out at, like, my brother and I were both in the shoe at the same time. He came out, he had two strokes immediately. Wow. Immediately had two strokes. Uh, had like the drooping face from the stroke and everything. We're young. We're pretty young. Yeah. Uh, there's a sensory overload that comes from being Coming kept, back into yeah, society. Coming. So those yeah. are some of the physical effects. Um, wow. Severe anxiety, uh, PTSD, um, like depression. He, like there's times I'm just walking around my house. I work from home and I walk around my house and I talk to myself and it reminds me of when I was in there because you just have these full conversations. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, it's a damaging experience yeah. for anyone, yeah. whether they did harm and deserve to be punished, which right. I don't think anybody deserves to be punished. It's not proven for transformation or not. Like I don't think that those, that that is an appropriate measure. And that was CDCR's main 
that was their main squeeze. That's what they did. Like, oh, you're going to go to the shoe. Mm-hmm. Indeterminate shoe. We don't know what to do with you. It's not safe with you on the line. There's no other alternative. So we'll put you in the shoe forever. Mm-hmm. So what are some other, besides the shoe, what, what else is um, detrimental as far as what you see as far as the harm in prison? I think looking at the way that they handle visiting, looking at the way they handle the family relationship, uh, they, it's extremely limiting. There's no reason CDCR should have a hand in managing the visiting room, yet they do, and they cancel visits. And there's a chain of command that is designed to limit visits, cancel visits, monitor the behavior, harass people going through visiting, the way they treat our loved ones so it deters them from coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the phone situation is no better. It's difficult and expensive to get a hold. They have to set up an account um, uh, with GTL, which is mm-hmm. just a a monopoly basically uh so those are two harmful things the way that they treat us not like humans we are a number we are our last name we are our cell number Mm -hmm. uh and whether you have a good cop cdc uh, cop meaning guard whether you have one good guard or one bad guard they operate under the same context that they're better than you Mm -hmm. and have people monitoring you who think that they're better than you because of your worst decision on your worst day it's detrimental to the psyche what do you say though because i mean you are still doing criminalistic behavior though inside mm-hmm. and people in the visiting room they're they're getting drugs passed to them they're doing things that are illegal so how can you i mean where do where do we draw the line as far as like well we still need to monitor because you're still doing inappropriate behavior you're, i mean so we still have to be able to think about that as well too so how do you justify in that aspect i think and i think that uh so i don't think there's any justifying the behavior the okay. behavior absolutely wasn't the right choice there also wasn't anything instructing me besides a set of rules in a title 15 not to do that there weren't there were guards that knew what was going on and weren't stopping it because they're just trying to get through their eight hour work shift and get their $40 an hour. Um, I don't think that adding more security stops that and that can be proven because if so, then nothing would take place on a level four yard. Those are the most secure yards. Nothing would have taken place in the Mm. shoe, but it did. Um, I think that like adding care, consideration, humanity to the process could improve that. I don't think I think to speak crassly, like you throw diamonds on a turd and it's just a turd covered diamond. That's Mm -hmm. essentially what they're doing with CDCR when they throw couches in day rooms and microwaves and say, oh, you can have these tablets. Oh, you have a little more privilege. Oh, you can have, you know, more clothing or what like that's just throwing turds on a diamond. It doesn't improve what actually takes place. It just makes a crappy situation a little bit better. So how do you see it being better then? So. Abolition to me, the way that it's best been described to me and the way that I describe it to others is a reallocation of funding. We have trillions of dollars going into CDCR every year. Uh, We have prisons that we don't need. We have people bunched into prisons that shouldn't exist, that are harmful, that are like geologically and like biologically harmful, black mold, valley fever. Um, And I think that you take the money that's invested to maintain this harmful system and you reallocate it to preventative measures. And that's where the fix is. And it might not fit. It doesn't mean harm will stop. But if we began acting preventatively within our communities at a local level, investing money in the community instead of some monolithic uh, system that just harms, then you have a start at something new. And, and what that could look like is treatment. Treatment. Like I said in the beginning, my uh, what you refer to as criminal lifestyle and criminal behaviors, I'd refer to as harmful trauma responses. That trauma started somewhere, and if it had been treated at the moment, maybe no one would have been harmed, and maybe I would have made better decisions. Mm-hmm. I at least would have had the, the 
the information to do so. I look at my later life and where I started making better decisions and making responsible decisions and thinking about, you know, how my actions impacted those around me. And the conversations that I had that got me to that point were hard because it was a belief system shift, but they weren't hard conversations like theoretically, like on paper, these were very simple conversations. How come that came at 35 and not at 13? Right? How come that wasn't offered in my local community? How come other kids that I ran into in prison that I knew growing up wasn't, weren't offered that? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what it comes down to is we dump so much money into policing and caging that we think that that's the only way that this can work. We've built something and it's too big to fail, mm -hmm. right? But it's not. Like you could reallocate that money, draw down on the prison spending, and eventually close those out and have preventative measures that are based on care and community and investment instead of a divestment. And it can, the world can look different in a matter of years. Mm -hmm. The entire world can look different if not just California or Riverside or Orange County. So that's an interesting point that you're putting. So I had the Riverside County Sheriff come on last week and he had talked about how their hands are tied as far as being able to have people who, let's say drug addiction, um, that are in that are in their drug addiction they they have them they're talking to them they're like please we have a, a place that you can go to just to get some help and they refuse they don't want to be able to have that help and yet i can't arrest you or do anything to be able to do it and so he's like the only way that we can be able to get this person to be able to get the help or make the the choice is to be able to arrest them so then that way they're forced either well, you either go to rehab or you go to jail that's the only time that they'll actually make the decision decision to go to rehab because otherwise if they're given the choice like you're saying if we have these preventative measures which we start having in the society now they don't want to do that unless they're forced to so how and we can't force people to make a decision yeah. to go towards something so then how do we do this preventative measure when we can't force people to make that choice and that's a really good point so i think that police operate on that false narrative because it's it's also systemic for police like this is the weapon that we have these people are an eyesore to our community they're doing harm in our community our job is to eliminate the eyesore right and so they're looking at it from a, an elimination perspective i think i think ultimately if I mean, if I went through life thinking that that was the only solution, I would do exactly that every single time. I'd arrest, detain, threaten with jail, and say, go to rehab. That's, they're thinking within the box. We've got to get outside of the box here. Okay, uh, so what, what does outside the box look like to you? Because if we can't force you, we're trying to give you the option. We don't want to arrest you. We want to get you the option to go into rehab. You're not doing it. You're, you're, you're not, just a, just not just an eyesore, but you're actually doing criminal behavior. You're robbing people. You're doing this act, this, uh, this act and the other. So you're, you're a detriment to society that's trying to be able to function. But yet, we, you, I mean, so how do we not arrest you, but you're not taking the choice to be able to have the preventative me measure to get that? help that you need i think that's a and that's a longer that's a harder shift it's a longer shift it's a bigger shift we have to shift beliefs so uh and i'll give you an example mm -hmm. so when i walk to 7-eleven uh from my 7-eleven is right across the street from my house i walk over there there's folks that are unhoused that are sitting in front they're a burden to the store owners theoretically speaking it's an eyesore to me theoretically speaking it's mm -hmm. uncomfortable maybe i think they're going to ask me for money what do i do i step over them and i go on my way uh the concept of community needs to shift 
The concept of community needs to look like this person's problems are my problems because I live in the community with mm-hmm. them. Uh, my neighbor isn't just someone who rents or lives or owns next door to me. Their problems are my problems. Their cares and concerns are my cares and concerns, even if we don't get to talk that much. And so the belief around community needs to shift because we outsource all of our, uh, all of our fixing to the police, to social services, to CPS. We say, I don't know what to do. I'll stand behind my closed door. I'll peek out the window, wait, call the police and wait for them to get there and they can fix the problem because I can't. And what I'm not saying is go in there and dive in and try to fix every situation of harm, but I'm saying those aren't their problems. They're our problems communally. So um, it doesn't mean that drug addiction won't exist. It, It will exist, but the way you look at it is if you look at it as something that's your problem, what would I do if this was my sister? What would I do if this was my brother? You know, then it looks a little different. And that's not what police do. Hmm. They don't go, how can I treat this person as a human being? They say uh, race, age, description. It's all objectification from the gate. Like they are an object that needs to be removed from the scene. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's tough work. It would be difficult work to shift everybody's beliefs. But it can start with a couple people just doing the right thing. And you see it happen every day. Mm-hmm. So if we get to the point of this shift and quote unquote abolishing prison completely, criminal acts or detriment to society doesn't stop whether each person has gotten the the trauma uh mental responses all the they have the knowledge and everything that has been lacking it's not going to stop necessarily criminal behavior from happening Mm -hmm. so what happens or what are we to do with those people who are still even though we've had all this help for you and you still decide to still be a criminal what happens with that if there's no prison there's nothing to be able to have you not be harm to society that you're still causing i think uh and i lean on transformative justice to inform me in questions like that mm-hmm. uh transformative justice uh eliminate it as a system operates like you know, like you there if you and I have a conflict and we can't mediate our conflict or harm takes place from me to you or from you to me uh, you can bring a mediator in you can establish pods you have people who care about you I have people who care about me you work through a system it may take months years it could take a long time so let's say that they're doing the the transformative justice we have the mediator but you're saying seven months it could take months it could take years they're still causing harm during that whole time that we're still in this debate. Like that's causing trauma to this person, this this society, to this, these people, you're still having this person while we're trying to figure out a solution, still causing harm. So how is that better than than to be able to take them away, to be able to be incarcerated and, and try and get you out of the situation of causing harm to other people and maybe reforming in prison with a good reform justice compared to abolishment completely like how how can we see that really work and again this is a whole mind shift yeah. of society but i'm trying to see what your well, viewpoint think, is on that i think the idea that not removing someone from the community they're harming mm-hmm. uh like thinking that that wouldn't take place is faulty so you can remove someone from a situation where they're harming other people you just don't harm them in the process as human beings like i think gutturally uh if not instinctively like we have a desire for community and what prison does first and foremost is it strips you from your community for the person they did harm okay. right and so and then tells society 
shame on them. This is what they deserve. Mm -hmm. And it tells the person inside the same thing. This is what you deserve. And you're relegated to a lower caste, essentially. And what do people do in prison? We can see the behavior that happens in prison. So you rebuild a new community in prison. You have cars. You have gangs. You have uh, activity that you are comfortable with that you know you can benefit from because you have that... uh, uh, like it's a survival mentality i'm grasping mm-hmm. it's a scarcity uh, mindset mm-hmm. uh and you create the community based on scarcity mindset and based on the trauma of being removed from your original community and things go on as they are nothing changes here nothing changes here and so what i think is uh in the case where severe harm takes place and the person is continuing to choose to harm the community or the individual or people around the individual uh you can talk about some different measure of treatment that doesn't destroy that person's psyche and rip them from the community that they need. You can offer community in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, treatment centers, um, th- there's, there's different measures. And maybe they don't exist right now or maybe they do because we know uh, that there's communities of uh, like, like populations that have migrated here and they're undocumented and they cannot call the police. Mm-hmm. They, can't, they don't have that as right, an option. Right. So how do they resolve instances of harm in their communities? And I think that you can take some serious, valuable information from watching what takes place in these situations uh, and build something out new. And it's not to say that we're just building from scratch because there's ancestral models, there's tribal models that have taken place for thousands of years before the advent of the American empire, if you will. Uh, And you can begin to piecemeal something that works for everybody as a community from what has taken place before because they had measures that dealt with harm that took place in communities and people that were cast out of their community but still had certain offerings of community so they could find a better place to come from Uh, and i think that you build off of that and kind of as a puzzle build something that works in a modern context Hmm. what would you say to those that feel that abolishment is just not possible in society i would ask people who think that to review the prison system and tell me how it stops harm Hmm. because if the prison system worked then harms acts of rape and murder would not be taking place today Right. If so it ta- are you talking about on in society or inside prison? In society, in society. It would it, the way that we police our communities does not work. If so, the amount of people that we had in prison in California at one time was one hundred ninety eight thousand. It was double what the population. They actually have beds to house. Uh, if this was working, robbery would stop, petty theft would stop, drug use would stop because they put all those people in prison already. But it continues, mm-hmm. so it doesn't work as it is right now. It just can the. The policing system continues to harm the communities and the prison system continues to harm the people that are inside and the families that are connected to them. And so is is that what we're seeing as far as in um, other countries? Um, I believe it's, where is it? Is it Netherlands or Norway. whatnot? Norway. It, Norway. So is that what they're doing in Norway and that's why they're criminal be or the the society just really doesn't have very many people who are causing harm or are doing criminal acts is because of the way that that they've been restructured the system yes and norway's a really interesting model it's still prison but yeah. it is a much more uh utilizable prison for these types of things like in terms of getting rehabilitation while you're inside being treated as a human and returning to community and not being limited upon your return the community like i, I watched a documentary on it uh and one of the wardens i think it was said something like uh, the way that i approach this is when folks come in i decide what am i going to do so that when this person gets out if they move in next door to me i feel okay mm-hmm. and i think that that's taken the community 
concept. You're thinking about the community in every single action you take. Mm-hmm. They use first names. They sit down and have conversations. Uh, they still like they set up a system that measures for like the security. So they still have security components that take place. Um, but there is a lot more care and consideration and humanity in their system than is ours. They also have a government that takes care of the people in their community a lot better than ours does. Mm-hmm. Ours is just kind of like pick yourself up by the bootstraps, figure it out. Uh, and if you have access to more things or privilege based on your race, your class level, whatever, then you'll have more. And if you don't, you got to figure out how to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, their community, I don't think, does that. I think that their government is better about trying to uh, establish equity. Hmm. Now, as you can see, they still have a prison system, so they didn't abolish it. They've reformed it. So are you? would you say that it would be better to have that type of reform, or you're saying even Norway should completely abolish prisons as well, too? I think Norway would be um, in a better state if they did abolish their prisons. Hmm. I think they also have a very different population than we have in America. Hmm. Uh, they have a much more uh, heterogeneous population, a much smaller population. I think that they have maybe seven prisons in their mm-hmm. country we have 35 prisons in our state we have you know the most prison populous country in the world by far by a long shot uh, so it looks different I think it would uh, uh, abolition would look different there I can speak to abolition in America the reason it needs to happen is it's attached directly to slavery yeah and and so if you be- don't believe in slavery then you can't really believe in a system that's built on making sure that slavery still exists 150 years later like that's why it's the way that it is Mm -hmm. Hmm. now when you were as far as for uh, like um, rehabilitation shall i say if you since you were in your addiction what could have helped you if you had that because you were saying if i had had this when i was a kid i maybe wouldn't have been turned out the way that i was so what was it that was lacking what could have helped you instead of prison to be able to not have followed the path that you went down i think my friend hugo says it the best he says you know the our school system educational system the probationary system as a youth they looked at me as a problem child instead of a kid with a problem a child with a problem Mm. Uh, and i think that coming at it from a less condescending approach uh, I was less inclined to listen as a kid than I was in as an adult because I'd suffered immensely more. I don't think that someone needs to go through suffering to find transformation. I think that growth can happen at a very young age. Kids are smart. Yeah. If someone had approached me and partnered with me on my self-work instead of telling me what I needed to do, mm-hmm. it might have looked different. Hmm. Uh, and that can be done if we reallocated funding and invested in education instead of jails and policing. Yeah. Right? Agreed. Do do you feel that you you because of the way that teachers or society looked at you and said this you're a problem, you believed that, and that's because and that's what you're like. Okay, well, since I'm the problem, I'm going to go ahead and be the problem. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And I mean, there was teachers who cared, and there was teachers who invested, but they were far in the minority in terms of educators and principals and probation officers that I had as a kid. Uh, and I mean, that's not a victim story for me. I definitely made some terrible choices as a kid. I think that the way you pick someone up when they make a terrible choice should be as if you know that you're capable of that same terrible choice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and oftentimes it doesn't come that way because we have this society where, 
you know, this person has a drug problem, so I'm a little better than them. This person mm-hmm. has, uh, you know, is, is unhoused, so I'm a little better than them. And we might not vocalize or say it consciously, but the feeling is there. So the help, the support looks different. The, if I was to offer the hypothetical person sitting in front of 7-Eleven something, I'm doing it because, you know, like I'm better than him, so I can help. Instead of I'm picking you up because that could be me. So you said you had some good teachers, but it wasn't enough people around. So do you need, would somebody, a child who's, you know, in this, this, this realm of trauma and, and starting this thinking, do they need multiple people to be able to finally get kind of that connection? Or do, do you feel like they need somebody who's kind of walked that path and has changed like you you could be a mentor you are a mentor to you know people that are that are coming out or to youth that are you know kind of down that path is that more of something that's meaningful for them is somebody who's walked their path to be able to take um take them under their wing or do they need more teachers and more you know several other people to be able to kind of help them try and reform i think it goes with what we were talking about earlier we have to look at everything from the bottom to the top from age zero all the way through because it's not a school to prison pipeline it's really a cradle to prison pipeline right Mm. and And we have to look at every single belief system that we have that has oversimplified the way that we approach things. So when I got in trouble in school, they'd send me to the therapist, to the the counselor. They'd send me to a diversionary program. Uh, When I got a DUI as an adult, I did the DUI classes. There was very little value in what was offered because someone was getting paid to offer a class or talk to me for a very limited amount of time. I think we have to break out of the boxes of what we're saying, oh, this could work, and just go with a very personalized approach on every single person. It sounds like an overload. It sounds like too much, like we couldn't possibly create mm-hmm. a problem, uh, create a solution that involves care and compassion and humanity for every single person, but we can, we really can. So did you did you look at those programs that were to be helped, like the counseling and the diversion program, did you look at that as punishment? Yes instead of something to be able to help you, even though they were technically areas that were to be able to be helpful for you, they had the information, but you just didn't want to listen because you felt that that was a a punishment for for your behavior. So then if that's the case, let's say we do a program that's of care. How 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 is that going to look different as not a punishment if you're sent to that to be able to help you? I think it can be as simple as approach. So like with success stories, when we work with... Uh, kids in the juvenile system or kids in schools. Our approach is the same. Like, hey, we're here to talk to you. We're not saying we're better than you. We're not saying we have solutions. We got some tools that work for us. Let's lay this stuff out and have a conversation. If you don't agree, feel free to voice it. A lot of times in the classes that I took as a kid, I was sitting quietly Mm. in the back of the room and being told what I should do. Ah. And I don't think anybody likes to be told what to do, specifically not a 12-year-old kid. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think you can start with just talking to someone at their level. You have yeah. to meet people where they're at. Not talking at them, but yes. talking with them. Ha- letting them have a seat at the table to be able to discuss what's going to work or not work. Or, you know, that's stupid as far as that approach. And then be like, well, why is it stupid? And, Absolutely. you know, kind of asking those type of things. Okay. That's the most valuable question is why. Is if you get folks to begin asking themselves why they say or do or believe the things that they believe, sometimes you hit a false bottom. I don't really know why I think boys can't cry. I don't really know these things. And when you can start to question those things, mm-hmm. you like naturally shift into a healthier way of thinking. You start to challenge the belief systems, break them down, Tear and down build. The walls. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
how you say that law enforcement has this this frame of mind this this thought process and not to not disagree with that i think that the system has been designed for a purpose and we've been doing things for so long that it's this form of punishment i think that we're starting in society to start shifting that we're starting to now really realize that punishment is not really the key that's not really really what stats our research is showing to be better so law enforcement is still is is law enforcement still creating harm in our communities with the way that it's doing it and what can they do better mm. what can they do better uh quit their jobs no yeah i'm, I'm just kidding so do you I feel like abolishing police as absolutely, well too absolutely i think that there's like what purpose are they serving hmm. there's better ways to approach the things that they approach the more regular police day is mostly involved like the most severe call that they'll have is a domestic violence call uh if it's a hostage situation they don't often help if there's a domestic violence situation they don't often help if it's a robbery an in-house robbery or low they don't often help they are reactive they are there to react at the end of the incident they aren't often preventative i think you could invest the money that we put into policing into preventative measures uh and do much better think of how we've dealt with unhoused situations we have a mediator that goes out anytime that an ambulance fire department or the police go to deal with a situation involving someone who is unhoused a mediator in my local community goes out with them and has a conversation about what their needs are and meets them at their level i don't know if every mediator is trained appropriately but i do know that has helped with problems in the community that have involved folks that are unhoused right mm -hmm. um so uh, it, are they still harmful yeah i think that a lot of the stuff that they do that has shifted isn't a shift in beliefs it's a pr shift uh, it's like, oh, well, police aren't hot on the charts right now. So let's go ahead and act like we care a little bit. But they still have the same training systems. If they didn't, then people wouldn't be dying. Unarmed people wouldn't be dying still, right? Mm. They still have the same training measures. They still have the same system that's in place. They're making little shifts so they can preserve what they are and cut out the stuff that other people don't like for the moment. And, and as soon as people stop paying attention, it'll go right back to the way that it was. That's my prediction. I'm not psychic. I guess a lot. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm right when I guess. So, but <laughs> Okay. So what prevents us then if we were to get rid of the police? Street justice. So back in the day, there wasn't this policing. You did me, you did me wrong. I feel I'm justified. I'm going to shoot you or I'm going to hang you up. On, I'm going to strap you up and, and hang you. Vigilantism. Yeah, vigilantism, which was very rampant in uh, in our past as yeah. far as that. And 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 so what ch what what will prevent us from going into that type of frame mind again whenever we've stopped this, you know, policing? I think because a lot of our conversation has been framed around what people who have done harm uh, need to do to transform their thinking. I think we need to do something for everybody to transform their thinking because we have an eye for an eye mentality. In the so the reason vigilantism takes place is but hasn't that, that been since Bible times? It's been since the Bible, absolutely. Okay. So it's a hard shift, but that was something that someone said at some point in time, just like any belief that we grabbed onto and said, "This is the way it is. It mm. is not the way it is. It is just what we've been doing." Right. So if that's been so ingrained for, I mean, centuries of this vigilantism, eye for an eye, which is what's kind of stemmed in, in people's, mm -hmm. uh, our, our belief system, how, how hard is that going to change? Like, what is really realistic? Like, if we were to start making these, these quote unquote things, what's the realistic goal and time frame that we can feel like we can be able to justify this move of abolishing all of these types of things and we are a healthy society? I think uh, within a generation, 
within a single really? generation, maybe even sooner. Okay. Because people are adap- humans are adaptable. If they weren't, I would not have survived what I went through in prison. Hmm. If I wasn't adaptable, people go through tremendous degrees of harm and terrible shifts societally and governmental shifts and revolutions, and they survive and they thrive afterwards. I think we have to get out of the gimme gimme capitalist grasp for like what my hyper individualist state will benefit from. Hmm. Right, and we have to get into the collective thinking, and that can happen within a few short years in a like a microcosmic community. It can happen in look at the way prison has changed since the hunger strikes. Prison has drastically shifted since the hunger strikes, and that's people that society has said are unredeemable, mm-hmm. but they made a decision to do something that is a nonviolent protest so that they could get something that benefited everybody, and it worked. Yeah. And they came out and it continued to work despite all of the predictions of CDCR. So I think in a microcosmic community, you can like you tend to see the echoes of what could take place on a larger level, but it takes everyone being invested. So town halls have conversations, re-education efforts that are offerings, not forced, uh, and and just begin those conversations. Start talking to your neighbor about this stuff. Start having, and and figure out like we live in this uh, polarized society today because of what's gone on politically. Um, or what takes place in the media and tells us what we are supposed to be thinking. We're this, we're that, we're red, we're blue, etc. We've got to get out of that and just go, we're human. Let's have a conversation. And if I don't like what you say, I'll tell you, but I'll find a way to say it so we can continue the conversation. Because what's more important is that you are having these conversations. Mm. It's not really important if, I, if you and I align on every belief. Right. right? It's right. just important that we have a conversation about it. Yeah. Such a interesting conversations well we can't meet at the table and not have a meal together so i asked graham what he wanted to eat this time and he said meatloaf so i made sure to make him some meatloaf mashed potatoes and some mixed veggies so i'm gonna go get that right now So I made Graham my special mom's meatloaf, her recipe with garlic mashed potatoes and mixed veggies. So go ahead and try and let me know what you think. I haven't made this in a long time. Mm, One of my favorite meals, meatloaf. Is it? Okay. Mm -hmm. Delicious. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. So my question to you with abolishment it's a money maker, obviously, prison system is. So let's say we get to the abolish process. All the people who have their hands and their claws and the money that they're doing, what are the, what's what's going to be their pullback or what are they going to do? Well, they're already doing it. Okay. Uh, as soon as pressure was applied to change or abolish prisons, we began getting like DVI closed, uh, Susanville up for closure, closing smaller yards and bringing the population down. CDCR immediately began investing in rehabilitative centers. They started stop funding, which stop funding is, uh, I can't remember, I think it's strategic. I can't remember the acronym, mm-hmm. so I won't misspeak here. Mm-hmm. But that's the, that is a CDCR ran program that invests in treatment centers and reentry hubs. Uh, puts their money in them, sets their rules on top of them, and puts people on parole within there. 
So it's basically prison with the guise of rehabilitation. A little more lax, maybe like being on a minimum yard, but they have mandates like blackouts, can't have phones. They have a very specific set of rules Mm -hmm. that correlates with the limitations that CDCR puts on people. So now that they've gotten their hands, quote unquote, now in the rehabilitation centers, which is what we're saying is necessary instead of, quote unquote, the prison system, how does this not turn into exactly what we're trying to abolish then? I think uh, I think it really is. It falls. The burden of responsibility falls on the community to figure out what the community needs. And that means knowledge of what's going on. Knowledge of what we don't need to bring someone in from it. We've already been doing that. Mm. Bring someone in from outside to fix our problem. We can establish as a community what our problems are first, because a lot of people are unclear on that. And then we can figure out ways to repair the problems, work on internal repair without harm. So let's say the community is involved and now they've created these rehabilitation centers. But if CDCR has their hands in these rehabilitation centers that are for the community to be able to be funded and do what they need to, what's going to be the difference? Then? I think it's it's I don't think taking CDCR money is where the problem is. Ah. It's doing CDCR's bidding that is the problem. But right? if you take their money, you have to do their bidding, don't Not you? Not necessarily. Okay. Uh, like my organization does groups in prison and there's grants that have been offered that we have gotten that put us into the prisons. We uh, do not operate under CDCR's rules. They, we don't hire who they tell us to hire. We don't involve who they tell us to involve. We operate our group exactly as we did when we were in Soledad, exactly the same way uh, as we do within any community center. Hmm. Okay. And we get some flack for it from CDCR naturally, but because it's effective, we're able to continue. Mm. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing with Initiate Justice. I know you talked about success stories the last time you were on, but I know that you're doing Initiate Justice as well, too. So what are some new things that you're doing with them? So Initiate Justice stays moving forward. Lots of bills. Um, the one that I just was speaking on that I'm a spokesperson for right now is uh, uh, it's called the Mandela Act, California Mandela Act. It rivals what the United Nations, uh, not rivals, maybe that's not the, it's comparable to what the United Nations Mm -hmm. put into place in regards to solitary confinement. Uh, First off, this prohibits um, pregnant women, uh, people with disabilities, uh, or like, or mental health issues, or the elderly from being put in solitary confinement at all. Mm. Uh, this another measure that it uh, incorporates is putting a fifteen to twenty day limitation. I think twenty days is the maximum amount of time that a person can stay within solitary confinement for. 60 days total out of a 60 day period. Uh, and it also uh, incorporates record keeping measures uh, that CDCR, you'd think that they would have, but it's not a very clear record keeping measure. Yeah, because you're saying indefinite um, hole. Indeterminate shoe. Yeah, indeterminate. Yeah, there yeah. you go. They don't have, they have like books, log books that they have to log certain behavior. It's very like general. Mm-hmm. I think that a more intensive record keeping with external uh, ability to look at what those records say will keep them honest because a tremendous amount of abuses take place in solitary. Yeah. So the the law, the legislature that you're pushing right now is that disabled pregnant women are never in it and then uh, only maximum of 20 days out of 60 that somebody yes, can be in. Okay. Absolutely. And then I think from that, uh, all of Initiate Justice's uh, legislation could be referred to as a non-reformist reform. So it's not about making the prison system better, like I described earlier. Mm-hmm. It is about taking away the things that are most harmful right now so we can continue to uh, establish a degree of equity in a place where otherwise it does not exist. Mm, okay. uh, so like uh, Prop 57, for example, uh, 
uh, gets people out because it allows people to earn credits for the groups and classes that they're doing. Uh, you'd be amazed at the amount of resistance we get from CDCR in regards to Prop 57, even though it's been in it's been a state law for two years for no longer than two years, five years mm -hmm. since 2015, I think 16. Um, so it's just about really like non-reformist reforms. We definitely want to tear the prison system down. And in the meantime, while we do that work, let's make this so that people aren't suffering every single day. Uh, some visiting laws, like work on things so that people can have a, a quality of life that isn't comparable to slavery in the mm -hmm. process of breaking down the walls. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again, Graham. It's so good to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Probably have him on season three as well too. So just be waiting. But uh, yeah, we really appreciate having you on and just sharing your viewpoints and um, just kind of that whole mind shift that is so foreign to us in, in America with regards to our, our prison system and true rehabilitation and what that should look like as far as community based. Like you are my brother and we should be able to lift each other up type of thing. So I thank you so much for sharing that with thank us. You. And I wish you all the best with Initiate Justice and the laws that you're doing, as well as success stories and um, helping to change these youth's lives. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks absolutely. for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for watching this episode of Breaking Bread. Make sure to check us out at LockedIn.info to find out more information on what we're doing and how you can be able to get involved. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.